Hey. hey. Sorry I'm late. I was just having some trouble with... Hold on. Um, that's my landlord. I just need to talk to him. Hey, excuse me. Peter? Peter, hi. Um, Amy Johnson. I live in apartment three. Oh, hi. I moved in last month. Um, have you received my voicemails? I left about 20. Uh, can you remind me what this is regarding? Yeah, um, when I signed my lease, you said there was some work that was going to be done. Right, that's still the plan. But, but that was supposed to be done before I moved in. Does your lease say that? No, but... Then there must have been a misunderstanding. But, the refrigerator doesn't work, the bathroom is leaking, and there's a broken window. My apartment's cold. If you wanted work done faster, you can hire someone yourself. Okay, um, I'll send you the invoice. <laughs> no, uh, you have to pay on your own dime. But that's not fair. If things aren't fixed, I'm not paying next month's rent. You know, if you don't uh, pay your rent, I will have you evicted. It'd be a shame to come home one day to find all your stuff's been tossed out in the street. Look, look uh, Erica? Amy! You seem like a nice girl. Uh, student, right? New to the area? This place is a palace compared to what you can find for the price around here. I've got applicants lined up at the door. So if you want to play games with your rent, you can find a new place to live. That's your uh, landlord, huh? Yeah. What a jerk. I feel so stupid that I rented this place. When I first moved in, it was filthy. The bathroom was disgusting, and I had to clean it all by myself. I already hired a plumber once to fix the shower. Guess what he said to me? No offense, miss, but why do you live here? Well, I guess I'd ask the same question. Why do you stay? I don't have money to move out. I've put all my savings into this place. First, last, and security. Like I'm ever gonna see that again. Well, if he's violating the lease, just get your money back and leave. It's not that easy. Uh, Amy, the system's on your side. Well, it doesn't feel that way. You heard him. I can be evicted. I don't think he can do that. A everyone says Massachusetts law favors the tenant. Well, that sounds great in theory, but how am I supposed to access the law? I don't have money to hire a lawyer, and he has all the power, and he has the keys to my apartment, and I'm almost positive that when I'm not home, Someone comes in and turns down the heat. Are you sure? Yeah. That's creepy. This is just a mess. I feel so trapped and I don't know what I can do. First, let's just take a deep breath. I'm sure things aren't as bad as they seem. They're not? I mean, he owns the whole building, right? If he was doing something illegal, someone else would have complained. Plus, like you said, I'm sure that taking him to court would be more trouble than it's worth. Can't you just hire a repairman? No, I don't have money for that. Then I guess you just have to ride out the lease. But that's ten more months. It'll go quick. Come on, let's go get some coffee. My treat. Maybe we can find you a refrigerator on Craigslist or something.
With so many towns and cities in greater Boston, the scene we just witnessed happens all the time. Perhaps even you've had difficulties with a landlord at some point in your life. The landlord in the drama saw his property primarily as a means to make money. The longer he ignored his tenants' complaints, the more money he made. And he knew that if Amy left, there were many, many more people that would take the apartment. We learned just last week from the prophet Micah about how this kind of dishonest conduct is actually called corruption. This unjust landlord actually embodies all three of the forms of corruption that Pastor Tim talked about last week. He has the power to decide who does and doesn't rent the apartment on his terms in spite of the law. His character influences decision to not follow through on promises that he made, pretending that he didn't. And his lack of compassion clearly shows in that he doesn't seem to have any concern about the impact of his decisions on his tenant. But this drama does more. It encourages us to think more broadly about how one can become vulnerable to injustice. Amy isn't poor. She's just used up all of her savings in order to rent this apartment, and it appears that she doesn't have any sources, either friends or family, to turn to for help. For those that are vulnerable, for a whole host of reasons, that's often where they find themselves. Affluent people have many more choices. They have material resources, they have access to legal defense, they have friends who have influence. I could keep going on. And the people that have affluence assume that because they have those kinds of choices, that other people have those same kinds of options. Her friend John assumes that Amy has those choices. He tells her that the law is on her side, and she just looks at him and goes, it sure doesn't feel that way. John clearly wants to help Amy, but when, he keep, when she keeps refusing his suggestions, he doesn't stop and try to understand what's really going on and understand her situation. In fact, you get the sense that he starts to become a little suspicious as if maybe she is the problem because she's not taking responsibility for what's going on. He wants her to feel better and either because he doesn't know how or because he's not willing to invest the time, he doesn't even suggest coming alongside her and supporting her and figuring out how to confront the landlord in a way that it doesn't put Amy at risk. People's stories are complex. Family relationships are complex. Community dynamics are complex. And if we only respond to what we see on the surface like John did, we will miss the complexity that's underneath. And it's in that complexity that often holds the key to the roots of injustice rather than simply dealing with the symptoms. 
What about us? Are there places in our lives where we either are unwilling or unable to look below the surface, to see the world differently, to understand that the world's problems are not as they seem, and to understand what our part might be in contributing to that? Is it possible for us to see with different eyes? The prophet Amos has much to say to us this morning about what it means to see below the surface. We're in week three of our Lenten series, Broken. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brian did an amazing job as he began the series with a message from Hosea. He challenged us to name what's broken and to lament it, to admit how difficult it is, and then to admit how damaged we are too. And then on Ash Wednesday, in the middle of a wonderfully reflective service, Pastor Ruthie shared with us how the prophet Joel calls his people to rend their hearts, not their garments. Although I think they did that too. To have their hearts break with what breaks the heart of God. Well, today, Amos is going to help us discover God's heart for justice. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. We learned on the first Sunday, Sunday of the series that following the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel had divided into two parts, with ten tribes forming the northern kingdom and the tribes of Benjamin and Judah forming the southern kingdom. And for many years under this divided rule, both of these kingdoms were under attack from enemies that surrounded them. But under the leadership of King Uzziah in the south and King Jeroboam in the north, the divided kingdom was experiencing its most prosperous period ever since the reign of Solomon. Their palaces and their cities were elegant. Their leaders were wealthy and powerful. Wealth can become a temptation that can lead us away from God's best in our lives. Not always, but probably far more often than we are willing to admit. And this is what happened to the nation of Israel. Amos speaks to how prosperity can get in the way of being able to see and embrace God's heart for justice. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. There actually isn't that much information about Amos in this book, but we learn more about him than we do about any of the other minor prophets. Amos lived and worked in a town called Tekoa in the Judean hill country about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. The Hebrew word used here for shepherd is not the typical one. It actually implies someone who is a breeder of sheep and goats. And he also tended sycamore fig trees. So while Amos was probably not wealthy by any means, he probably was a class above the shepherds who simply tempted the flock, who were normally thought of as very lower class and outcasts. Amos also wasn't a professional prophet. This was something he never intended to do. 
He was called from his middle-class vocation to speak to those in power. And when God gave Amos his vision, he didn't even call him to speak to the people in his own kingdom, in his own area. He called him to the northern kingdom. He called him to speak to leaders that were in conflict with his own leaders. Well, not all of us can, can be called, are called to be prophets, but God can and will use all of us, regardless of vocation, to make a kingdom influence, a kingdom difference. And as we seek God's priorities in the pursuit of our vocations, all of us are called to listen to the prophetic words of Scripture and to the modern-day prophets that God sometimes places in our midst. We're called to listen even when they make us uncomfortable, maybe even especially when they make us uncomfortable. One of the reasons many people don't like the minor prophets and rarely read them is because you can't get very far because of all the words of anger and judgment. Pastor Tim actually encouraged all of you last week to read the book of Amos. And while I won't ask for a show of hands, I wonder how many of you stopped after chapter one or chapter two. If you did, don't worry, you won't be the first or the last. (laughs) No one enjoys being yelled at. We don't like to think about God's wrath, even when it's justified. But righteous anger has a very important purpose. It, like pain, tells us that something is wrong. It gets our attention. Not only brokenness, but evil has to be named. Evil has to be lamented. And at some point, evil also has to be judged. But what we forget when we're thinking about the prophets, and one of the reasons that we don't read them that often, is that the prophets also offer words of hope. It's just that the percentage of words of hope against the percentage of words of anger and judgment, I didn't do a calculation, but it's pretty far apart. But I actually think that that's one of the ways that prophets get our attention as well. Imagine yourself walking in a desert blistering heat mile after mile. Your water bottle has gone dry and you're not sure if you're going to make it out of the desert. And then you come upon an oasis, a small spring, a spring that doesn't dry up even when the heat is really intense in this harsh climate. It isn't big, but even one drop of water falling upon your parched tongue tastes so good. That spring brings back hope for the rest of your journey, even though the heat of the day is not any less intense. That's what prophets do for us. So after four chapters, four, four, we finally arrive at that oasis in Amos. This is what the Lord says to Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will, go to, will go, surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek me and live. Drops of cold water. The Hebrew word that's used for seek in this verse is about much more than simply discovering something new. Its meaning is wide and includes words like inquire, care about, investigate, worship, examine, call to account, question. 
There is intentionality. There needs to be intentionality in our pursuit of God, but there also needs to be intentionality in our pursuit of justice. When we seek justice without first and throughout seeking the God of justice, we risk passion without roots. And passion without roots cannot be sustained. Sometimes we're tempted to search in the wrong places, searching for answers in those earthly places of power. We think they can change things, and that's what was happening with Israel. Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba, those were the places of power in the northern kingdom. But God says, do not go seeking in those places because he knew that they were temporary, that they wouldn't last. Only he would be present forever. So God sends prophets like Amos into our lives so that we will search in the right places to remind us of where to search. Amos says in chapter 3, there was no justice in the land. The laws given to the Israelites at Sinai after they fled Egypt had given God's people basically a roadmap for how to live. But very quickly, they began to wander off of that map and wander off of that road. And while there were 10 commandments and hundreds of specific laws related to those commandments, at the core, all they really needed to remember was two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These would become core to Jesus's new covenant. But God's justice is not just some objective reality of balancing wrong and right or bad and good. Justice is also about how what we do affects people around us. Is what we do life-giving or is it soul-destroying? So that brings us to the first of two purposes that God shares with us about prophets in Amos. Prophets call us to seek God's heart. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, it sounds very vertical, and sometimes we can stay there, and we need to do that. But we also need not neglect the horizontal component, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And in this section of Amos, we actually find that he focuses more on that horizontal component, the impact on people, in three phrases, all beginning with the same three words that come in quick succession in chapter 5. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Strong words, bitterness. Strong feelings, hate, detest. Strong actions, casting righteousness to the ground. With words this strong, we can't just ignore them. We can't plead ignorance. We can't hide in the busyness of our lives. Evil's being done. People's lives are being damaged. Oppression can often seem like a word that's so big, so broad, that we don't even know how to grasp it. But Amos provides us with some vivid details to help bring it down to earth. He tells the Israelites, you trample on the heads of the poor as the dust on the ground. You crush the needy. 
The Hebrew words can also mean being bound or cramped, beaten down, nowhere to turn, just like Amy. I remember the first time I watched the bumpers video that we saw at the beginning, how the images of the plates and the ornaments and the rows, they weren't just broken, they were shattered. It pierced my heart. The image of the picture frame of a family as the glass shatters when it hits the ground brought to mind families that I've known in Boston, families that I've known in the suburbs whose lives were not just broken, they were shattered. Prophets are, at their core, messengers. And so that brings us to the second purpose of prophets. Prophets call us to pursue God's priorities. And then he quickly goes, so what we're going to do is we're going to return to those same three verses because embedded there are answers to the second purpose of the prophets. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Justice and righteousness actually need to be thought of as two sides of the same coin. Throughout almost all of the Old Testament, they are like they are here done in pairs. They come together in pairs. Justice speaks to the more systemic legal side. Righteousness is about the more personal, relational side. But unfortunately, we too often misunderstand that personal side as being something about just private morality. But there's actually a communal element to it. Biblical scholar Bruce Waltke describes that communal element when he points out that the very definition of righteous people is that they disadvantage themselves to advantage others, while the wicked are willing to disadvantage the community in order to advantage themselves. Righteousness has a public component. Then Amos says there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. One of the disheartening parts of the Me Too and Church Too hashtags that Pastor Tim talked about last week is how often women's stories of sexual harassment or abuse have been ignored or covered up for so long. But what's really sad is even when they find the courage to speak out, and it takes great courage, they aren't seen as telling the truth. In fact, often they become the ones on trial. Finally, there are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. In his sermon two weeks ago, Pastor Brian asked the question, can we lament the fact that people of color make up 30% of the general population and 60% of the prison population? Mass incarceration is a critical issue for our time. We tell ourselves that the laws are there to protect the innocent and the poor. That's what justice is, right? But Amos points out that rather than protecting the poor and innocent, often the exact opposite takes place. This year marks the 25th anniversary of the Innocence Project, an organization that is committed to freeing the staggering number of innocent people who are in prison using DNA tests. To date, 354 people in the United States have been exonerated, including 20 
who served time on death row. This, the, the average time they spent in prison was 14 years. 14 years lost when you're innocent. Does that sound like justice? Justice is not always found in the courts. Laws are not always just. Those elected to hire and enforce the laws are not always held accountable for their actions. We need to start asking ourselves questions that dig beneath the surface to learn what is it that we're not seeing in order for this to happen, not understanding. If these laws are adversely impacting whole communities, we need to ask why. But in order to see the problem, there are some root issues that need to be addressed. And so Amos identifies two. The first root is complacency. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Sadly, prosperity fosters complacency. Many of the products that make our affluent lives so much more enjoyable here in the United States are produced by slave labor in other countries. Cocoa farms in Ghana and the Ivory Coast produce 70% of the world's cocoa. Over the past 20 years or so, investigative journalists have uncovered widespread use of forced child and adult slave labor on these cocoa farms. They are associated with popular products such as Nestle and Hershey. Some of the children are sold to these farms by family members who feel that they have no other choice. Some are kidnapped and trafficked into slavery. A 2010 documentary, The Dark Side of Chocolate, tells the story of this exploitation. At one point, the filmmakers actually set up a screen next to Nestle's headquarters in Switzerland to try to get them to pay attention. And despite efforts by so many um, to bring greater food transparency, just two years ago, a California district court has ruled that these candy makers don't have to disclose whether their chocolate comes from growers that use slave labor. Is that a just law? But complacency can even get in the way of our asking hard questions. We can feel paralyzed, like what can one person do against all of these big companies? Well, a mom that attends Grace Chapel saw this documentary, and so she decided to no longer purchase Nestle or Hershey chocolate bars. And she shared this story with her friends. Once when she was at the supermarket and they were in the candy aisle, her son suddenly yelled out, hey mom, which is the candy that doesn't have child slaves? Like every eye in the aisle was suddenly on them. <laughs> Even a child can be a prophet. But the complacency of the people of Israel ultimately grew into a second root, superficial religion. I hate, this is the Lord speaking, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Rather than letting the word of God shape their actions, there was actually little connection that Amos saw between their worship and their daily lives and the way they lived. And we can fall into that same trap. 
Jamie Hillman, our music director in the 915 service at the Lexington campus, found a song this past week with lyrics that are haunting when you think of them in connection with the mass shooting that just happened in Florida. If we just talk of thoughts and prayers and don't live out of faith that dares and don't take on the ways of death, our thoughts and prayers are fleeting breath. If we just sing of doing good and don't walk through the neighborhood to learn its hope, to ease its pain, our talk of good is simply vain. Anybody ready for a cup of cold water? <laughs> Amos returns at the end of this section with more drops of water to keep us going. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Our country's historical narrative says that slavery ended in the U.S. with the Civil War. But a recent book titled Rethinking Incarceration by Dominique Gilliard tells a different story. He carefully documents how slavery has simply changed form since the Civil War. From convict leasing during Reconstruction from the, to the Jim Crow laws and segregation, the war on drugs targeted primarily black and brown communities, and most recently, the rise in privatized prisons. Dominique makes a strong case in his book that these kinds of punitive measures that this country has used, thinking that it's going to reduce crime, are actually not as effective as we may think. And they are disproportionately directed towards people of color. But then he gives us a cup, a drop of cold water. The second half of his book shows how scripture can point us to a better way, what many re-term restorative justice, not punitive justice. And I think Amos would agree because in the verses we just read, Amos not only says to hate evil, he says to love good. Dominique understands that people need to be held accountable. And I think he also realizes that restorative justice has to be applied differently depending upon the severity of the crime. So he's not just closing his eyes. But for many, many, many crimes, he believes that if they were done in a way where life-giving habits and relationships were rebuilt rather than their lives being destroyed within a prison, that many, many more people would not end up back in prison. He believes that wherever possible, the path of restoration needs to be built within communities, not behind the walls of a prison. And he believes that the church can be the one to lead the way. But we have to be willing to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others. And Amos tells us that as well. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. As it turns out, in every generation, God is calling a people to lead the way back to his priorities. And while most, particularly in the nation of Israel, will ignore that cry, this verse puts forward the possibility that those who do listen, God will preserve as a remnant. 
The northern kingdom will fall. Jerusalem will fall. They'll be sent into exile. But a remnant will return to the land. And in the midst of that remnant, God will send his son. Can we be a remnant? Can we be a reflection of God's son? And then one of the most famous verses in Amos. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Have you ever hiked in the mountains and come upon the source of a stream? how it bubbles up out of the rock and then you sort of see it trickle down. And maybe as you drive down, you realize that stream has picked up other streams and is getting more and wider as it gets down. And then you think about those streams collecting with other streams into rivers. And eventually we get to the mighty Mississippi. The mighty Mississippi doesn't dry up even when there's a drought. This verse is central to the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King referred to it many times. John Perkins, who actually started something called the Christian Community Development um, Association, it's the title of his book, Let Justice Roll Down. This verse was central to those who struggled for freedom and needed those cups of cold water. And while I certainly grasp the power of the imagery all these years when I've read those books, I don't think I ever really understood it until I was preparing for this message the striking metaphor is about persistence and consistency. Justice cannot be something that we just dabble in because a stream that isn't being fed eventually will dry up. As soon as we become complacent and step away, the streams dry up. So today our journey into our broken world has taught us that we do justice and righteousness when we seek God's heart and we pursue his priorities for others and for our world. I had to wrestle with so much of what's contained in this message in order for me to get to this place where I'm overseeing social justice as a pastor. I actually grew up in Oklahoma in a suburban neighborhood on the far northern edge of the state, capital. Cows ended up in our elementary school playground one afternoon. I rode horses. I even rode my horse through a McDonald's drive through one time just to see what would happen. <laughs> I, but as I trained to be an architect, God brought me to the Boston area. I worked in Cambridge and I lived in Somerville, not too far from where this video was, was filmed. And as I saw it, like many of you, to use my skills as an architect... I found myself being drawn into Boston, into the neighborhoods of the South End and Roxbury and Dorchester. When my husband and I married, we actually took a week off of work our first year of marriage and did a Habitat Blitz build in Dorchester. I never expected to fall in love with the city. Come on, an Oklahoma girl that rides horses? But through rich relationships with an incredibly diverse community of people, I began over time to see the city with different eyes. It was very different from what I would see on the news. Through years of conversations, I learned from those living in the city how to see beneath the surface, how to understand what was really going on at the root rather than just paying attention to the symptoms. 
These experiences and many, many others, they became my aha moments and eventually put me on a path where God would call me to vocational ministry and then to go back in the city, not as an architect, but as a pastor. We all want a simple formula to address injustice. Just tell me, one, two, three, what steps? But in 38 years of ministry as both an architect and a pastor, I found that there is no simple formula. Remember, life is complex. Everybody's path is different. Everybody's gifts and talents are different. But I don't want to leave you with nothing to do. So here's a few simple steps that you can think about before we leave. Start first by training yourself to look before, beneath the surface to ask questions when you hear something on the news and include in that reflecting on whether you have any biases, any ways of seeing things that may be getting in the way of actually seeing what's going on. Pursue God's priorities where you can in simple acts of compassion and justice, just like our mom regarding here in, uh, in, at Grace Chapel, regarding the products you buy, because it's not just chocolate, it's clothing, I mean, if you do the research, there's lots of things where you can think about this if we're more aware. With whom you do business, with whom you socialize, be reflective. We announced in January the GPS tool that we've created to actually help you in this process of reflection because it talks about your talents and your passions and your skills and it gives you a place to share all of those experiences. Can I tell you when I joined the staff here, I realized that those 17 years of volunteer activity perfectly prepared me for the job that God called me here. He'll use everything. And then the most important thing is to remember that you have to stay with this path for the long haul. You can't wander off. Somebody told me early on it's a marathon, not a sprint. These problems have been generations in the making and it's going to take generations to see them change. But you know, maybe the millennial generation will be the one to make that change happen. One of those millennials is Dominique, this young African-American pastor turned author that I talked about earlier. I got to know him through a network called Evangelicals for Justice. His journey, his journey in tackling what to many seems like an overwhelming situation of mass incarceration, it began with one visit to the prison and an aha moment where visiting with one of those prisoners, all of a sudden he understood that the things he had thought before about prisoners weren't true. He was in the Boston area this past Thursday evening and he spoke and he gave me some fresh insight into a very familiar passage that I think can help us as individuals and as a church to move forward. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a very practical model to follow as we relate to those who live in worlds that are often quite different from our own. Feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, inviting strangers to be our friends, caring for those who are sick, and visiting those in prison just like Dominique. But he made a very important distinction that I'm not sure I'd ever heard in regards to these verses before. He said, Matthew 25 isn't about charity, which keeps an us versus them mentality. It's about proximity. If we open our lives to people who are different from you, if we venture into neighborhoods or communities that we're not familiar with, if we ask people to tell us their story, there's so much to, not to learn. 
You can't understand why a person is hungry if you don't spend time eating with them. You can't understand why a person is sick if you don't spend time caring for them. You can't understand if a person, why a person is in prison if you don't spend time visiting them. We do justice and righteousness when we pursue God's heart and pursue his priorities for others in our world. What injustice that breaks the heart of God is breaking your heart right now? Has anything been stirring within you these past few weeks and months? As we lament what is broken, we need to put ourselves in a place where God can rend our hearts, for it's only in rending our hearts that we can be part of joining God to mend other people's broken hearts. In his spirit, he will overcome our complacency. In his spirit, he will take parts of our worship that are superficial and shape them into something that is deep and transformational. I found a song that really captured this called Tears of the World by Michael Card. So as we close, I'm going to read some of the lyrics. Close your eyes and listen. And then we'll have a moment of silence. I'll pray and then we'll have a moment of silence. Ask God if you don't have something that's on your heart to reveal something to you during this time. See if God speaks to you. Let's bow our heads. In any split second of a moment of time, in the blink that is one single day, the sum of the sorrows that wrap round the world could catch every soul up and sweep them away. So how could it be that my eyes are dry? So open my eyes and open my heart and grant me the gift of your grieving and awaken in me the compassion to weep just one of the tears of the world. Dearest Heavenly Father, It is overwhelming. I don't want to minimize that. In the face of so many big injustices, it's hard to know where to start. But that's why I love this song. It only takes us grieving one tear of the world for God to open up our hearts. And then we just have to take steps forward in faith. We may not always know where those steps are taking us. And there may even be detours along the way. Again, it's not... A simple process. But the Lord, I've learned, the Lord will honor our obedience. And so, Lord, for each person here in the sanctuary, I pray that wherever they are in their journey, whether they need to take a first step or a next step, Lord, that in the next few weeks and months, you will continue stirring in them and having them reach out and do, have conversations, pray, whatever it takes to understand what tear you want them to grieve. Amen. Let's stand for the prayer of confession that we've been 
doing to end each of our services. Sovereign Lord, you and you alone know our many offenses. You know how great are our sins. Like the Israelites of old, we have become complacent, finding comfort in the riches of this world. We have not defended the cause of the innocent, fed the hungry, nor sheltered the homeless. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and have our hearts break with what breaks your heart. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.